Hey guys, this is the Sustainable Self-Development Podcast. I'm your show host, Abel, and this is episode 9. In this interview, you'll hear, again, one of the earlier podcast episodes with none other than the man himself, Lyle McDonald. He is one of the legendary brains in the fitness industry who has written several fabulous books, such as the Rapid Fat Loss Handbook, the Stubborn Fat Loss Protocol, or the Guide to Flexible Dieting. He's also always on the cutting edge and is looking for the best science-based methods to get to the next level in terms of body composition and performance. And his main niche, I would say, is primarily fat loss. His website can be found at bodyrecomposition.com and I really highly recommend that you guys follow his work because it really is golden. In this episode, we are talking about how to distinguish fats from good science-based advice, certain dieting trends such as the low-carb trend, which has been going in and out from mainstream in the past decades, the work of certain people in the low-carb sphere such as Gary Taubes, and then, of course, we geeked out on some nutritional topics such as how much the macro composition of your diet matters for body composition, whether you need carbs for building muscle, or whether too much dietary fat during a bulk is counterproductive. Lyle really didn't disappoint in this episode, and he was just as impressive as everybody would expect him to be so. So, without further ado, let's bring on Mr. Lyle McDonald. You are someone uh, on the cutting edge, always um, looking into how to optimize every little detail of, of, of a nutrition plan. But in every book of yours, you start with a big disclaimer saying that this is appropriate for a small minority of people and for a large number of people don't need to worry about these details. So um, with that, I would be curious, um, who is your favorite kind of target audience or population to write to as an author? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's one thing people often forget. Right? A lot of people that are in this industry you know, are very interested in optimizing and, you know, they're at 15% body fat, they're trying to get to 8%, and, and the details really matter when, you know, when you're a high-level athlete, when you're doing a lot of training. And I think it's easy to forget that the general public, A, their diets are usually so terrible that any change, you know, will, will, will benefit them. You know, even some of the simple diets of the don't eat some particular food that they're overeating frequently works really well. They a aren't interested in that level of detail, um, and B I think that level of detail tends to scare them off. Uh, I've seen complete beginners go in, and you know they're trainers, a bodybuilder, or someone very involved in physique, and the first day they're told you have to eat six small meals, this amount of lean protein, and they hear that and go, I can't do that. Um, it, it's just, it's, it's an impossible expectation. I mean, yeah, there's the people that want all those details right off the bat, but I think for the general public, small changes make, uh, have huge effects. Um, I had a client, I'll get to your specific question. I just want to kind of address this. Mm-hmm. I had a client years ago and he was drinking something like four, you know, full regular sugary sodas a day. It was something. And I said, you know what, just switch to diet or water. Just make that one change. And he started losing, you know, a pound and a half to two pounds a week because he took, you know, what is that, 800 calories? It's uh, just over 3,000 kilojoules per day out of his diet without just that one small change. Of course, as people get from beginners carrying a lot of body fat 
sort of into the intermediate range to the very lean range, they have to become a lot more detail oriented. So, so far as, you know, which population do I, I enjoy working with more or prefer writing for? I actually think both are important. Like, you know, I, I'm very interested in the details. I, I've always found the issue of getting someone, a male to single digit body fat or a female, to, you know, 12% without muscle loss, without performance loss. I find that um, a fascinating topic just because it is so difficult. Uh, especially without drugs. Drugs have really made, and drugs make a lot of the problems go away. So you get hormonal adaptations, muscle, you know, all of that. At the same time, I know that's what, 10% of the total dieting population, um, you know, even from a practical financial standpoint, writing for that is fun and interesting, but it won't really pay the bills. So I also think there's a lack of, of really good information for the general public. You know, most popular diet books are crap. They're getting better, but it's a lot of garbage. Um, I think a lot of people don't realize the issues, right? You see, and I, I remember years ago, and, and people would write these, you know, beginner exercise programs. It's like, oh, let's start with body weight exercises and do a T push up, and they weigh 160 pounds. I'm like, <laughs> you really? Are you really telling me that a 300 pound beginner? male or female is gonna have the strength to do a one you gotta be kidding me i've had people at that that you know to walk for 10 minutes continuously on a treadmill was exhausting for them to, to think that oh yeah we're gonna start with body weight stuff you gotta be kidding me but they have no conception of that you know if you if you've never weighed more than 160 or never worked with that level that kind of clientele you have no concept of what that person is going through. And I think a lot of folks forget that they forget what it was like to be a beginner. They forget what, they don't realize that they don't represent a lot of their clientele. So I try to take that into account and provide, you know, what I think is better information. Because as much as anything else, kind of getting off topic, you know, we know that, that weight loss is unsuccessful for many. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. It is not easy in the modern environment. However, I think the way that people approach dieting and just the types of diets they're exposed to in the general public are so appallingly bad. You know, I don't, I don't know what they have in the rest of the country. Here, you pick up any magazine at the the checkout counter at the grocery store, and it's just crap. It's just, it's like walk off 20 pounds in a week. You know, here's the broth that will bump up your thyroid, and it's like, this is part of the reason for the failure is the diets they're getting, the dietary advice they're getting are terrible. The psychology, and this is what gets into the flexible dieting thing. People think that, oh, I'm dieting. I'm supposed to be miserable. The food is supposed to taste like cardboard. How is that possibly sustainable in the long term? You know, yeah. actually the group that, that will do that are the psychophysique athletes. You tell them to eat chicken breast and broccoli every meal, they'll do it. They don't, they're, they're obsessives with subclinical eating disorders. The general public, they can do that for a while. And I think that's a big part of the failure. So that, that was a big genesis, I think, behind the flexible dieting thing. Um, all the research shows that, that those kind of flexible dieting attitudes help with long-term success and maintenance. So, so I, I like both. I think both are important, um, both from a, a problematic standpoint. You know, I would say that that the lean athlete, it's more physiological problems. You know, they, psychologically, they're easy. They'll do whatever you tell them. For the general public, I think the psychological, behavioral stuff is far more important because any change to their diet will probably be an improvement. Yeah. 
Yeah, actually, that, that just reminds me. I, I was trying to design kind of a training program for a friend of mine, and his biggest struggle is that he just felt so uncomfortable between all the meatheads in the gym. And I realized that I need to tackle the whole issue from a completely different standpoint, like that the, the whole issue is not with the training, it's somewhere completely different. So, and, yeah. and that's extremely common, you know, over in, in the US, uh, you know, the gym that's probably as divisive as anything is Planet Fitness. And you know, it was started yeah. by Greg Everson, who actually was a bodybuilder and Olympic lifter, you know, way back in the day. And I think he saw that there was a market for that because you walk into Gold's Gym or World Gym here, and as a complete beginner, overweight beginner, and that's what you see. You see a lot, you know, very large percentage of you got big muscular guys, you've got the women who are already in shape, and it's very intimidating. Their attitudes are often, you know, bodybuilders can be very elitist and it's a very difficult population to be around. So he started playing fitness, and as much as, as the hardheads complain about it, you know, they will kick you out if you're making too much, if you're dropping weights and being that guy. They really want to make it accessible to the general public, right? And there's a lot of complaining in that hardhead community. Oh, Planet Fitness won't even let you deadlift. You know what? I don't care. A beginner doesn't need to be deadlifting. I've most seen most people that I've seen deadlift don't do it well anyway, so who cares? Yeah. Anything that gets them started is progress, right? We have a huge problem with this. And yes, some people will never go past that, but who cares? Some percentage will get more serious. They may move to a different gym, but giving them that opportunity and that ability to go someplace where they're not going to be hassled or surrounded by that is huge. And you know what? It's one of the most successful gym chains ever. And I think that's really telling. You know, the hardheads complain, oh, I can't work out there. You know what? It's not for you. You've got plenty of options. You can go slam weights and scream and be that guy. I deal with that every day at my at my gym, which is fine. Planet Fitness is not for you. So don't don't complain. Because if you actually care about fitness and health and, and people, anything that gets them going works. But what, what these guys care about is that what they do is right got to squat you got to deadlift you got to bench press i'm sorry but that's bs yeah anything is better than nothing for the general public yeah and actually that 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 just brings to mind that i think i i think eric helms was that i heard phrasing it this way that kind of the fitness and nutrition uh sphere almost reflects the economic sphere in that there is no middle class anymore you're either either obese or you're a fitness professional basically there's, there's no way yeah and that's and, and like i said the fitness professional typically comes from a very different population you know i started working out in high school and from the get-go you know i was very interested in it very you know got very serious about it it's easy to forget that it's easy to forget you know i the typical typical high school guys like goes to the gym is like man i want to get jacked put me through my paces do whatever it takes that's not a 30 year old woman who's never exercised who's out of shape who's intimidated but it's that first group that ends up as the professionals and it's that other group that you know you'll frequently see people that started out active and become they understand they have a completely different mindset and mind model. So yeah, I agree with Eric completely about that. Um, unfortunately, the people giving the advice are almost by definition, the group that has no conception, they have no perspective for a grand majority of their audience. Right, and so 
that just brings to mind. So now you're writing a book. I know about women's fat loss. Uh, I, I kind of heard you mention it that you're also working on a book which is more about general behavior change and kind of nutrition for general public or? Um, so what, what happened, this was at the beginning of last year and I, I started this book actually out of spite, uh, very honestly. Uh, someone had plagiarized my guide to flexible dieting, mm -hmm. claimed that they pioneered it and that just made me angry. So I decided to, to go back because that, that book was written in 2004. I've learned obviously a lot since then it's kind of a rough book so i went back and looked at it and started editing it i was like oh, i should add this and i should add that and i should add the other and and suddenly it was turning into this epic project because one thing i haven't really done much of is written you know general fat loss i've had very some very specific diets you know ultimate diet was for very lean dieters stubborn fat solution same thing Guide to flexible dieting is probably the closest I've done to some general, but it was more focusing on the behavioral stuff with the diet on tech. And so I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to write a comprehensive book, cover every topic, including a lot of behavioral stuff that I've gotten into, because I, I really think that's the key for the general public, right? We know how to make people lose weight. We've known that for 40 years or longer. We know what to do. Getting people to do it for more than three weeks that's what we can't seem to figure out. How do we get them to do it, you know, long-term, right? Everyone loses weight over a year, whatever the studies are. And by year three, half of them have regained most of it. By year five, it's basically 70 or 80%. Like why, what's, what's the hang up? And I think there's, there's a lot of different stuff that goes into it. But yeah, so I started that book and it just, I was just pulling information that was either on my website in other books to just make it completely comprehensive. So of course it got out of control. It's about 95% done. And I got to the section on women and fat loss and women have more difficulty. Generally, a lot of different issues that they're having to deal with hormonal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, different social pressures, uh, which is a big part of it. And I was like, Oh, I, I need to address this. When I got into it, I'm like, oh, it'll take a few chapters. And I'm like, ah, it'll take longer than that. All the women of course were like, we need this book. And suddenly it spiraled out into its own ridiculous project. Um, so the, the big book that's kind of on hold really is going to be comprehensive. It covers everything from underlying physiology, diet setup, adjustments, training. Like it's going to, and that way I don't ever have to write anything about fat loss again. I will have to put it all in this one book. Anything that's not in there either isn't important or it basically just, it, it's not important to the, the big picture. Um, the, the women's book has completely gotten out of control. Women have so many issues that men simply don't. Their hormones are changing every month. You add birth control, you add, uh, some women have elevated testosterone, but polycystic ovary syndrome, you add premenopause, postmenopause. Women's hormones change in a way that men's don't, right? Men's are just kind of flat all month and over the lifespan, they just kind of go down. Women's are crazy every month and then at menopause, they turn off and their bodies fight back harder, they use fuel differently, they have different nutrient requirements. And this is something that kind of by and large has been ignored. Um, you know, mo most training, most studies have been done on men. They still are, like about 80% of research is still done on men because they're easier to study, yeah. right? You can bring a man into the lab and study him on any day of the month. For women, you have to standardize where in the month you are based on when their period starts, birth control changes that. You know, I, I talked to, I think, was it Brad Schoenfeld? I talked to somebody at the ISSN conference and they were like, yeah, we wanted to study 
some women and we wanted to study them on this day. And she started her period a day early. You gotta wait a month because the hormones have changed now. Like women are much more difficult and complicated to study. And the reality is that they just frequently aren't for that reason. But it's, it's turning out that in most aspects of really everything, they do need to be treated different. You know, the, the principles still hold, make no mistake. The generalities still hold, but in terms of the specifics, they have less lean body mass, their fat is stored differently. Obviously it gets mobilized differently. It gets stored differently. They have different, you know, most training comes from men and women are just assumed to be a smaller version of them. And it's really not the case. So that, that book is, it's completely out of control. It's, it's, it is driving me slightly crazy just because the deeper I look, the more I find like it's just the, it, the, the, the differences are almost never ending um, but it is coming along and I hope to have that done it's actually I'm planning to split it into two books because it's already over 400 pages and that's just too much yeah yeah actually um, so so two things um, one is you did a really cool episode with uh, or podcast episode with Jeff Nippard so people who are really curious on the details on women's fat loss, I, I would like to direct them to that podcast, uh, Jeff. Oh, we talked about with him. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Jeff, cool guy. I, I also interviewed him on my podcast. And, um, and so, so just before we start to geek out on some nutritional stuff, I'm curious, um, you, someone being in the industry for like 20 years or something, um, what do you do when you're at a dinner, let's say at a friend's house, and there is some vocal guy in at the dinner table talking about like, like, yeah, yeah, and you shouldn't eat, I don't know, after 8 p.m. because that all turns into fat or whatever, like so, some, some, some BS basically, nutritional BS. Personally, at this point in my life, I don't bother. Um, it, mm -hmm. I, I learned when I was much younger, I was far more uh vocal in terms of trying to change people's minds it, it just it's it, it it's it's the nature of the beast you know i still see like folks like alan aragon do it he's just determined uh you know he debated gary mm -hmm. Tubbs, and it's just like dude it's a waste of time quite frankly it's a waste of time anyone who already agrees with you will continue to agree with you anyone who is bought into Tubbs is not going to change their mind they're just not, right? They've, they've bought what he has to say. Tobbs won't change his mind. Over the 10 years since that book came out, I've watched Gary Tobbs just keep changing what he's exactly saying. Because every time the data says, dude, you're completely wrong, he just goes, well, I'm going to change what I'm arguing so that I'm still technically right. <laughs> he's just moved his, because there's too much money to make. He's moved his goalposts like every year for a decade. It doesn't matter how, you know, at most there's a tiny percentage in the middle that you might sway with it. To me, you know, there's also something called the backfire effect. The people who believe in something, it's really weird. The more evidence you give them that they're wrong, the harder they believe in, in the nonsense. Like, it's just, it's a weird aspect of human psychology because it's an, I think it's an ego challenge. They don't want to have to come out, you know what, I was wrong. So I used to do that and it serves no purpose. Uh, so I've gotten to the point that basically if someone asks me a question, I'll, I will give them the best answer that I can. I wait for them to come to me now. You know, I, I, my website, I realize is not, you know, it has a fairly small following. I'm interested in the people who are ready for the information I'm ready to provide, mainly because I started out young and bitter, and now I'm just old and bitter. I tried for so long to fight and fight with people, and now I just can't be, I can't be asked. Um, 
you know, occasionally I had somebody tell me one time this, you know, in the general public, I was, cause I drank, you know, I was drinking diet soda. They go, you know, drinking diet soda is worse for you than drinking regular soda. Oh my God. Like, yes. Because yes, the aspartame is worse for you than 200 calories of table sugar. Give me a break. And I just looked at her and said, you know what? I've studied nutrition and physiology for the last two decades. You read one article, you're wrong. I'm done. I didn't even debate it with her because I don't care. You know, I, I really don't. Uh, I've occasionally had people, you know, I said, if people ask, I will give them the best information. I'll give them the references. I will give them the science to the best of my ability. And except for that, I don't care. Uh, so this is at, at age 46, I don't have the energy anymore. And, and Alan and I, have, I've discussed this with him. You know, he wrote the, a piece for my website about Anaconda, which was an old uh, something teen nation did a bunch of years ago and i go dude you're wasting your time what you're gonna do is drive more people to the website you yeah, can't yeah. fight it you can't argue you know look at what happened with food babe right food babe was just spewing the most amazingly awful information and every time she wrote a stupid article everybody would post about it about how dumb this was guess what you're giving her free publicity when Vice.com or whoever it was ran that article skewering her, she got five times more hits to her website than she was getting before. Whether she did that on purpose or not, I don't know, but that is a model that works. You say stuff that's so stupid that dumb people believe it, and I'm not just being mean, it's just that's reality, but the people who know better will, give you, will do your publicity for you. Yeah. People who kept sharing that stuff, who kept skewering that stuff, were making it worse, in my opinion. Because another aspect of the human brain, controversy breeds interest, right? Every time in the U.S. that they try to ban an album, it sells 10 times more. Mm -hmm. Every time you try to censor a movie, people want to see it. And every time someone online sees an article, well, if there's controversy, there must be something to it. Donald Trump, for those of you who are following the ridiculousness of the American uh, <laughs> political uh, process, I don't know if he's doing it on purpose or not, but he is playing the game so well because the dumber the stuff he says, believe him more, and the people who think he's an idiot, all they do is talk about it. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're doing his work for him. So in my opinion, the best way to deal with that stuff is to simply ignore it and to provide better information so that when people want that better information, they can find it. And that's the approach that I take now. Yeah, I'm, not, yeah. I'm not interested in, in proselytizing or trying to change people's minds anymore. Once they've realized that all the other information is crap because it didn't work, when they then they come to me, then they or they go to Alan or they go to Eric or they go to Brad or they go to the people who are very scientifically evidence-based. And that, that's increasing. I think the percentage of people who, who want good information is increasing. I got into a big debate with Brad Schoenfeld about this. And he's like, I really think it's changing. I go, no, dude, it's not. I go, you're seeing the people that come to your website. Bodybuilding.com, Tnation.com gets 1,000 times as many views per day as you ever will, as I ever will. You can add up all the evidence-based fit, fit pros in the industry, and there's a lot of us. And bodybuilding.com still gets 100 times as many views per day as us put together. General public is never going to come around. Yeah, like one thing I will say, though, on sometimes it's, it's, it is easy to fall for that, though. Some people like Peter Atia, I don't know if you follow his work. Maybe I'm strawmanning him a little bit, but basically his vilifying corpse 
more or less what it comes down to is that not overeating but more so the types of nutrients that we are overeating which are carbs mainly that are the problem but the way he presents it is incredibly compelling like he he is an incredibly wise person and if you listen to him it's very very easy to fall for that or or to yeah that's just it it is very you know gary tobbs did a fantastic job of cherry picking his his literature right I, it's hilarious that he says he spent five years of, of involved research because he seems to have stopped at about the 1980 you know he was citing a 1912 medical book for the insulin thing like basically he came across the study that agreed with him and he goes well i'm pretty much he just stopped looking after that he missed the point that that study turned at what was even that the, the researchers who did that study later said that it was wrong he realized that he had something and he did he made a very compelling looking argument now the problem i then had is okay people buy into it fantastic the average person doesn't have the background to to figure that out my problem is that okay if i now present with you 50 studies that say that his studies are wrong, they will ignore those. That's mm. the issue, right? And usually, you know, there's there's typically an element of truth to what they're saying. There's always an element of truth to this. The people vilifying carbs are saying, well, people overeat carbs, you know, uh, oh, what's his name? Uh, I can't remember. You probably will know. Um, there, there's a, a guy online, and he talks very much about the reward aspect of food consumption, and he's written... Oh, Stefan Guiné? Thank you. Yeah, that's who I'm thinking of. Yeah. And, and he's not wrong. You know, food, food drives reward, but everyone's focused on carbs. Everyone got on that, oh, sugar is just as bad as heroin. Oh, come on. Uh, what they <laughs> don't realize is that eating is rewarding, right? It's not carb addiction. It's not food. It's, it's eating addiction because eating is very important to humans. They also miss the fact that dietary fat drives the same system. They also miss the fact that, you know, the whole high fructose corn syrup, you've got Ludwig, you've got Tobbs, you've got all those guys that are like, this is the most obesogenic substance in the world. And it's like, um, and they, they base that on correlations. In the 80s, obesity started going up. Well, guess what? 80 million other things were changing in our environment. They've now shown that sugar intake is going down as since about the late 2000s. Obesity continues to go up. Well, boom, your correlation is now wrong. Sure, are sugars easy to overeat? Absolutely. They're sweet, they taste good, they're calorically dense. Liquids specifically are much easier to overeat than solids, right? And the issue is high fructose corn syrup is found in soda. Now, what I always tell people is, all right, fantastic. I'm not saying that's untrue. However, you ever known anyone who drank a lot of sugary soda who the rest of their diet wasn't appalling, right? Go look at their grocery cart. Go look at what they're buying at the mini mart. They might be getting that soda with a bunch of high sugar, high fat junk food, right? Why are we focusing only on the sugar aspect? Most, most junk foods, um, or a, gr a grand majority of them anyway. Yeah, we've got pure sugar stuff. We've got sweet tarts and Smarties, and I know Smarties overseas are chocolate-based. And, you know, we've got stuff like that in the U.S. That's not what people eat. They get candy bars that are high sugar and high fat. Yes, soda is a problem, but to think that that's all that's going I've never known someone who drank regular sugary soda who had the rest of their diet in order or wasn't inactive. So mm -hmm. to focus on that singular reductive factor 
is asinine, right? So then they get into the insulin hypothesis. Well, sugar drives insulin, right? Well, fat can store itself by itself. So you're wrong about that in the first place. They're like, well, but if you get people to reduce their carbs, they lose weight, right? Because they eat less. Magic. We knew that in the 70s with the ketogenic diets. There's nothing magic to it other than they're eating less. It's not insulin. Now, the recent Kevin Hall study, there's all this work that says it's not a matter of reducing insulin. It's a matter of reducing calories. Is removing concentrated sugars a way to do that? Sure. In the 80s, which is probably before, I think, probably before you were born, guess what? They found the same thing with dietary fat. Yeah. And if you reduce dietary fat, you eat less too. The problem is low, very low-fat diets are frequently difficult to stick to, et cetera, et cetera. People ended up overeating anyway because what they heard, and you can find this on low-carb forums all day, every day. What they've heard is, it's low-carb, I can eat as much of it as I want. Because it's low carb, can't get fat without carbs. And then they go, why am I not losing weight? Well, maybe you're eating too much. No, 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 calories don't count. Yeah, that, that was me actually two years ago. <laughs> sure, and, and I, I mean, it's an easy trap to fall into. And if there's a problem I have with a lot of mainstream diet books, it's that. They start with counting calories doesn't work. You don't have to reduce calories to lose weight. This is what makes you fat. Don't eat this, you'll lose weight. And you do until you end up eating more. The body adapts, hunger goes up, metabolism slows. And the, the food industry will introduce lots and lots and lots of either low fat, like we had by the time we had every low fat food in existence in the 80s, people were overeating. Guess what? The last low carb thing in the 90s, they had low carb jelly beans, low carb uh, cookies, bars. If you go look at some of like the Atkins food bars at, at the store, they have, yeah, they have like three net carbs, but they have as if not more calories than the carb-based bars. But people go, ah, no carbs. Oh, nuts are no carbs. Bring it on. Hand Paleo people are just nuts and nuts and nuts and nuts. Do you know how many calories are in that? Just as calorie concentrated as sugar. Yeah. So invariably, though, but once they've been programmed that all that matters is insulin or all that matters is not eating x nutrients it works for a while and the long-term studies show that in the long term low carb it's maybe a kilo difference it's maybe two and a half pounds and low carb guys are like see see it's superior give me a break two pounds yeah. eh, that's noise yeah, that's yeah. not even relevant and, and, and actually, the, the funny thing is that that brings to mind that I have a different YouTube channel where I just kind of put, put up videos that I gathered from like podcasts and stuff like little quotes and stuff. And the most views, the, the one video that got the most views is a, an interview where uh, Jonathan Baylor, author of the Calorie Myth book, asks, asks uh, yeah, Gary Taubes, um, so what would happen if someone was to drink 10,000 calories of butter? Are you saying that that person would not gain fat? And Gary says like, well, yeah, I'm sure they would actually gain some fat eventually, but no one's going to do that. So, you know, it's which, like, you know, it's like, which is not an answer. Like that's, that's him, not an answer. That's not yeah. an answer. Yeah. Yeah. The question, um, because, because like I said, originally it was insulin then and not calories. And then, and he actually, so this is where he got, he came up with that. So in 1980, uh, George Bray did a study and they looked at, uh, food intake in lean people and obese people. And the study suggested that the lean and the obese eat the same number of calories. Okay. About five or 10 years later, they would do more research and realize that no, lean and obese say they eat the same number of calories. And these are very mm -hmm. different things.
estimates. Because we know now, after 30 years of literature, people are terrible at estimating their calorie intake. People can misestimate by anywhere from 30 to 70%. So a lot of people, and the obese tend to underrepresent or underreport fat intake, an odd blip. I'm not saying they're actively lying. I don't want anybody to hear that this is though, see fat people are slothful and gluttonous. That's not what I'm saying. People suck at this. Registered dietitians are bad at this. And if anyone should be good at it, it should be them. An odd little data point is lean fit people frequently report eating a lot healthier than they really do. They probably do it deliberately. I would I would suggest that if anyone's lying, it's the leaner and the fitter people because they want they don't want people to see what they're really eating. So they they misrepresent their food intake by also they don't talk about the weekend carbo sugar sweet junk food binges. They don't talk about that either, but they do it consciously. Regardless, George Bray they realize that look the obese do eat more. They simply are underreporting it, and there's been tons of fun little. TV things, right? They go to the man on the street. How many calories are in an entire pizza? And people go, "Uh, I don't know, 800? Okay, that's a slice. That's maybe two slices. This pizza has 3,000 calories. This is 12,000 kilojoules. You've seen the stuff where some woman's like, I have a slow metabolism. I don't eat much at all. And they add it up and she's eating, you know, 15,000 calories a day. She's eating four bags of potato chips, crisp. She's eating a bunch of chocolate, bunch of all this stuff, but they just, people don't realize it or they're diluting themselves or whatever. Well, Gary Taub saw that study and he says, oh, well, if the obese don't eat more than the lean, there must be another cause, insulin. And then, of course, he just ran with that because apparently he didn't read anything after 1980. Because if he had, he would have realized that that's, that data set was wrong. It was completely flawed. George Bray, like I said, they came out later and was like, you know what? We screwed up. We were totally wrong about that. Um, and we know now. that. But anyway, so, so first it was insulin. And Gary Tobbs has also been on record saying is exercise doesn't work because it makes you hungrier, <laughs> which is contextually true however the number of calories you'd eat above normal is still less than the calories you burn during exercise right the net effect is still a negative right so if you burn 600 calories in exercise you might eat 200 more well guess what you're still 400 in the hole he's he's gone on record as saying exercise is ineffective despite all the data that says he's completely especially for weight maintenance he's completely wrong about that as soon as it was clear that the insulin hypothesis failed, then it, he switched it very subtly. He says, well, yes, it's calories. However, all calorie-restricted diets are carb-restricted diets and lower insulin. So it's still insulin. Like, yeah. it's just watching him dodge this. And then, of course, we've got the recent Kevin Hall study that, I mean, meticulously controlled, looked at high-carb, low-fat, high-fat, low-carb, measured insulin, measured all of this and high carb, low fat, and I'm not saying it's inherently superior, I'm just saying that when they measured it under super controlled conditions, there was no difference. Low carb guys also seem incapable of realizing that low carb and high protein are not synonyms because the studies they love to cite don't match protein intake. Mm. Higher protein is superior to lower protein. This is not debatable, but they seem to think if there's a benefit to low carbs is that the average person ends up eating more protein because you have to. Well, guess what? I can eat high protein or higher protein and still eat carbs. A high carb diet is not the equivalent of a low protein diet. 
unless it's a certain like 80 percent carbs which i've seen some people do yeah. low carb but they they can't seem to make that distinction that a protein match that if the, the proteins not matched the studies aren't valid because you're not you're comparing th- at least three variables protein carbs and fat are all different but they're like we'll see it's low carb well it's also higher fat it's also lower protein um right so kevin hall's study and i've even seen low carb zealots go well actually metabolic ward studies right where it's controlled and they control every calorie are less valid than real world what <laughs> how can i just like the cognitive distance the, the the desire to maintain that ideology is just amazing and don't get me wrong low carb diets are often better for people with insulin resistance very low fat diets tend to leave people hungrier not debating that for a lot of people reducing carbs does lower their calorie intake increasing protein keeps them fuller moderate fat diets keep like i'm not debating that low carb diets have their benefit hell my first book was about ketogenic diets but i even took the stance of here are the pros and cons they are completely appropriate in some situations they're completely inappropriate adherence which kind of ties us back to where we started long-term adherence is the key it always has been the diets are really within a range are basically about the same that's what the long-term studies show it just doesn't matter the best diet is the one you can stick to in the long term and if a lower carb or a low carb diet is better for your long-term adherence i'm all for it make no mistake it's just this this insistence that carbs are the problem that carbs are the only problem that insulin is the, like, it's, that's the issue because I think it's misleading people. It's leading people down a bad road and making them think that, cause I actually did. It's funny. You mentioned that as a restaurant when, uh, good calories, bad calories first came out. And someone actually said that, that eating a pound of butter, what did he say? He was arguing with his girlfriend or wife or something. And he actually did make a comment. So there's something about you could eat an entire stick of butter and you, I'm just like, oh God. And it, stuff like that really bothers me because it is it so confuses the general public. Like because like you said, compelling arguments, how do they know? How do they yeah, know what's yeah. valid or not? When everything they're hearing is completely different. Um, yeah, yeah. Well one one thing that, that it actually makes it very difficult to judge for people is is when people like Taubes or or John Kiefer, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with his work. Yeah. So like they will say something, for example, um, I don't know, something about insulin and they will cite a reference, but the reference will be, not be a, a, a metabolic ward study or something. It will be like whatever transgenase phosphorylase, whatever does this in the cellular level, like how is the average person going to judge whether that's correct or not? They will just say, like, whoa, that looks very scientific. It's frequently is not when you actually go look at the paper, like it, it either has nothing to do with the claim or I've seen in many cases, like the abstracts are often very misleading. And if you read the full paper, it actually says like you read the discussion and it says the exact opposite of what they think it says. Because, but But they know that there's about, 14 people on the internet and I, you know, or however many like me who I'll go pull the full paper because I want to see what it says. And you go look at it. Yeah, that's not what this paper says. And you yeah, point yeah. that out to them and they just get defensive and dodge around it. You know, Kiefer, when the car backloading thing, when, he, when it came, basically came out that everything he said was basically nonsense, he actually had the arrogance to say, well, I'm still right for the researchers to catch up with me. 
And it's like, dude, you can't have it both ways. You can't say science, 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 and go, you know what? Actually, all your science is BS. We go, well, science doesn't have all the answers, which is the game that a lot of people play. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I see that a lot, or you get the, well, you can find a study to prove anything. Well, that's not how science works. But yeah, you see a lot of that. And, you know, in the fitness industry, usually that sort of claims are predicated on, well, I'm in shape. Or, of course, you know, my favorite, I have a PhD. No names need to be mentioned. Uh, I've had a current, an idea that came through a few years ago, I was highly critical of. And I cited all the papers, I cited all the research, and they were dismissed because, well, Lyle doesn't do research. Uh Oh, screw you. Uh, Like I said, we don't need to get into that particular thing, but you get people that are claiming to use science, but it's only when it suits them. Yeah. And you cannot have it both ways. I even try most of the time, you know, studies do frequently contradict each other. And it's usually because they're looking at slightly different things, the models are different, and and the people don't realize that the way science works is one study is meaningless. Two studies is still like you have to replicate the results, preferably from an independent lab. And eventually you get enough research on a topic that goes, okay, we can build a pretty good model about this. Just to say it won't change, but a paper comes out, you know, and this is a problem with general popular science reporting. Every new paper says something different and people go, you know what? Last year, butter was bad. This year, butter is good. Eggs were bad. Eggs are good. I give up, right? Yeah. Every, every time, you know, as my grandmother used to say, everything's going to kill you. You pick your poison. You know, the WHO thing, ah, processed meats are bad. Right, look at people who eat a lot of processed meats. Their diet is terrible. Like, they don't, you know, flat, and you can't, in the same way you can't reduce obesity to one factor, you can't reduce health to one factor. There's, you know, but people want an enemy. It's, it makes for good clickbait topics. And, you know, by the time you've got 10 studies and nine of them say one thing, and then there's one outlier, you know, okay, something was weird about that, you know, not dismissing it, not saying it's wrong, but if you and if you if you put them together, you look at them side by side, and you go, well, these five that said this looked at this particular group. An example: years ago, there was some debate over did metabolic adaptation happen, right? Did the body adapt metabolically to weight loss? About half the paper said yes. About half the paper said no. And if you actually put them, group them, the half that said no were in extremely obese people, right? When you're going from fifty to forty-five percent body fat, the body doesn't need to adapt. But if you're going from 30 to 25% body fat, it does. That was the division. It wasn't that it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen until a certain point. You build a full model from the majority of the papers, right? One of the papers Kiefer cited was, ah, insulin resistance is lower in the evening. Well, in diabetics under certain conditions. Well, two other papers said it's worse in the morning. But when you mm-hmm. cite a single study, it's very easy to draw a simplistic model. And that's, we're not diabetics. We're talking training impacts on this, diet impacts on this. But that's unfortunately become kind of the nature of the industry. And I'll be honest, that to a great degree, you can probably blame me for a lot of that. Right? It was starting <laughs> to happen in the magazines in the 90s. Muscle Media 2000 It's one of the first magazines I remember that really was, was looking at studies. But when I got out of college in, in 1995 or 1993, and I got online in 1995-ish, I was on this news group called Misc Fitness Weights, right? And I was a fresh out of college, just gung-ho. I was going to change the world. And 
I was really one of the first people who was pushing, going, you know what? You can talk about meal frequency all you want. Here's what the research actually says. And you're wrong. You don't have to eat six meals a day to stoke the metabolism. Skipping a meal does not crater. Like the old ideas are wrong. And I was one of, I think, I think one of the first people who really was pushing that evidence-based thing through going, look, this is what the science actually says. And I'm, I'm fantastic that 30 years of empirical evidence has found this, but a lot of places, it's, a lot of places it's right. A lot of places, you know, bro science is turning out to be correct. Yeah. Yeah. You let guys experiment for 30 years, but then you, you get into the drug issue. You get into so much that came out of bodybuilding drug culture and that changes everything. But I was really one of the first ones pushing that. Now that's, if you don't have research, you can't be correct. And now we're getting to the point that, God, everyone's got a PhD but me. Like, I'm like, is this where we're going to get to? That if you haven't published science, you don't get to, if you haven't published a study, you know, you've got Brad Schoenfeld, Brett Contreras, Lane Norton. Uh, I don't know if, Al, if Alan Aragon has gone back to school, but like, you've got a lot of guys now that are publishing studies. And yeah. it's like, I think you can partially blame me for that, but wanted to I, I wanted to track back for a second because we were like really geeking out on fats and carbs, <laughs> which which is which is one of your big uh, like uh, topics that you're commonly asked about. So um, since we were talking about like new research and stuff, one one exciting stuff that came out in recent years that I wanted to ask you about is, you know, Jake Wilson uh, in Tampa did some interesting stuff on ketogenic diet um, and, and bodybuilding. Um, but, but regardless, one, one thing that came out in recent years that interested me is that how carbs for natural lifters, kind of just doing traditional bodybuilding, as far as glycogen is concerned and insulin doesn't seem to be this amazingly huge player in muscle building, like insulin within the normal physiological ranges. And because gly glycogen resynthesis is so efficient, it's not that much of a concern. What are your, your thoughts on carbs for bodybuilding? You know, Eric and I have been discussing, right? So you look back and, you know, for years when they looked at around workout nutrition, it was A for endurance athletes and B, glycogen resynthesis was really the priority uh, because you, endurance athletes doing four, to, four hours a day are burning a ton of glycogen that, that they have to refill. Some studies came out uh, you know, that protein plus carbs was better. We had the idea of this anabolic window. And the general idea was that amino acids stimulated protein synthesis. Carbs stimulated insulin, which inhibited protein breakdown. Yeah, um, yeah. Actually, hang on one second. All right. All right. Oh. And kind of in recent years, some of that has come into question. It looks like, you know, a protein may raise insulin enough to have, sort of have a maximal effect. Adding carbs may not have a benefit from, from sort of a, a strict muscle growth standpoint. And there's kind of two different issues. A is optimizing muscle growth, you know, the post-recovery period. And then there's also the glycogen resynthesis aspect of it. Um, and a lot of that, I think, comes down to how much training you're doing, how much volume you're doing. You know, back when you had guys in the 70s doing 20 sets per body part, that depletes a lot of muscle glycogen. If you've got a natural lifter doing, say, six to eight sets of eight to 10 repetitions or in that range, it's probably not depleting a stunning amount. And even if it were, right, even the, that rapid glycogen resynthesis thing, 
it's really only truly critical. Like if you've got an athlete training twice a day, right? They're doing a hard workout in the morning. They're doing a hard workout six hours later. They have six hours to recover, refill, to be ready to train. Yeah. yeah. That is a very different situation than someone who's training once a day or once every other day or a couple days on one day off. When you've got 24 hours, this idea that you have to get this super rapid refilling of muscle glycogen, it's really not as important. Um, so Eric and I've been discussing this cause I'm actually on the around workout nutrition chapter of the woman's book and mm-hmm. many kind of of the opinion that until workouts get to, you know, maybe 90 minutes and I would say predominantly bodybuilding work, right? If you're doing powerlifting work, Olympic lifting in that three to five rep range, you're mainly ATP, CP pathway that really short end. You're not using a lot of carbohydrate until you're really doing a high volume of training you probably don't need a lot of, you know, you don't need a hundred grams of carbs after training. You may not need any. Um, I, I still, you know, I'm hedging my bets. There's still some work uh, that, that suggests it may have an addition, you know, but you don't need a ton. If you want to do 25, 30 grams of protein and 25, 30 grams of carbs for this workout, carbs won't hurt you. Are they required in the strictest sense? Eh, probably not. And if you're on even moderate carbs, you're going to refill muscle glycogen. You know, most bodybuilders are alternating body parts anyway. So if you train upper body twice a week, you've got three days to refill upper body muscle glycogen. If you're training, and if you're training more frequently than that, you're probably doing less volume per workout, right? I know there's a trend towards training body parts more frequently than previously. Um, If you're doing that though, you're not doing as many sets per workout, generally speaking. So if you're doing three hard sets, the amount of glycogen depletion is just minuscule. And if you're eating moderate carbs for the next 24 hours, you're going to refill that. So, so yeah, I think there seems to be a shift in that away from needing super excessive carbs immediately after training. I mean, even the anabolic window, um, Alan Aragon did a really good review on that topic. And outside of a couple of very context specific situations, it's at best a small effect. Like generally really, your overall day's eating, that you hit your protein goals, your carb goals, your calorie goals, that's really the primary factor. Around workout nutrition can have benefits, right? Like if you train first thing in the morning, let's say, let's say you gotta get up at six, you're in the gym at seven, you don't have time to eat, or you know that if you eat something, you're gonna be sick at your stomach, right? That's a place where I think post-workout nutrition, critical. Yeah. Because you haven't eaten anything. And a lot of the early studies looking at this topic were fasted. I think that's part of what, because it, it's an easier to control. Because previous, But if you've eaten four hours before your workout, a moderate, even a moderate-sized meal, four or 500 calories, mixed macronutrients, carbs, protein, fats, and fiber, it's still digesting. You are still getting aminos and, and carbs released into the bloodstream. Yeah. You know? yeah. If you've gone, let's say you ate lunch at 12, you're not training till 6, you might benefit from a small amount of carbs and protein before that workout, just to, cause you, you, that last meal may is probably almost done digesting. Your blood sugar may be a little bit low, very individual. Some people, you know, we've got the intermittent fasting group. Some people are fine training on an empty stomach. They're typically doing very low volume training, right? They go in, they're hitting three heavy sets, handful of body parts. That's very different than being in the gym for 90 minutes. In that case, you might want to have a small snack an hour before, have whatever, a small protein bar. It doesn't even need to be much. Some people don't train well with solid food in their stomach. Some people don't train well with liquids in their stomach. 
you're doing high reps on short rest, very metabolically stressful, that'll make you throw up under the best conditions. You may not want anything in your stomach. So a lot of this is kind of very context dependent, but I think, yeah, in general, this, this idea that you must eat carbs and protein as soon as possible or your muscles will fall off is incorrect. Uh, would you say that for uh, like the average person, let's say training five days a week, so fairly high volume, but natural lifter, not doing anything crazy, would you say low carb still might be a, uh, a bad choice for them? But would you say that that it's a bad argument, that it is a bad choice because of glycogen and insulin? Would you say that that's not really a concern for these people? That's, I think that's part of it. There have been a couple of studies that muscle glycogen impacts on gene expression for muscle growth. I think one or two have said that it matters. One said that it didn't. Like, I, I do think, you know, being depleted, and that's another, then that is another situation. If you're chronically depleted of muscle glycogen, that's very different than eating a moderate carb diet. And in that case, carbs may be beneficial. Um, the, the, the research on that is kind of all over the map. Some of it says if you're on a low carb diet, some of it says it doesn't hurt strength performance. They typically test like three sets. If you're doing a 90 minute workout and you're on less than 100 grams of carbs a day, and maybe we should define, you know, define, defining terms is key. Low carb means different things to different people. To a traditionally trained dietitian who thinks everyone should eat 65% carbs, 40% carbs is low carbs. Well, that's still pretty high if your calories are high. Low carb diets traditionally refer to, you know, 100, 150 grams per day or less. That's, you know, so we're looking at a lot of it needs to, to define terms. I think if you're on moderate carbs, 30 to 40%, don't worry about it. If you're on like a ketogenic diet, less than 100 grams of carbs per day, I think that can eventually get limiting. But even then, what if you do a weekend carb load, right? That's the old cyclical ketogenic diet. That was body opus. That was the anabolic diet. The ultimate diet has elements of that uh, where you, you know, if you are doing two days a weekend where you are refilling muscle glycogen, that will probably get you through the week. Yeah. So are you, you know, and so now we just, are we doing a long-term ketogenic diet, long-term low carbs? Are we doing, you know, a carbo load every three or four days or two days out of every seven? You know, you, you start getting into more complex schemes. Um, I do think there's other disadvantages of strict low carb diets. Insulin is low and insulin is low. Testosterone binds to sex hormone binding block. You may have less free testosterone. Cortisol will probably be a little bit higher than it otherwise would. Um, IG, you know, IGF-1 in that it matters may, you know, th there's some hormonal changes that occur that I don't think are optimal for growth. At the same time, if you're doing moderate volume training, you sure don't need 60% carbs, right? Again, if you're an endurance athlete doing four hours a day, no debate. You need 10 to 12 grams per kilo per day. If you're a bodybuilder, unless you're doing super high reps and super high volume, you know, I did the math in a couple of my books. Like to deplete muscle glycogen about 70% from normal, you have to do some, it's like, it's about 12 sets of 20 per body part. It's a lot of volume, right? That's 240 total reps. So unless you're doing 24 sets of 10 per body part, you're gonna be okay. Okay, so um, so then uh, that I think uh, pretty much covers carbs. Like um, uh, what one thing before I forget, uh, I definitely wanted to ask you about fats because 
Um, one thing that I commonly hear and like A, I never really heard anyone say a definitive number on how much fat we really need. Like for like, let's, let's again say an average, not like reasonably healthy and lean lifter training five days a week. How, how much fat do we need? I never heard a real good definitive number on this. Some of it depends on how you define need, right? From a, from a strictly survival standpoint, you need that small amount of essential fatty acids. That's a few grams per day. Like that would define the realistic lower limit. Clearly that's unrealistic for, for the long term. You know, back in the 80s, people did like 10% fat diets. It was like 10 or 15 grams a day. I, that's usually not sustainable. Um, they also had a lot of other things going on. You know, a, a lot research a research set of studies that gets brought up a lot is studies showing that very low fat diets like 20 percent can decrease testosterone levels slightly compared to a 40 percent diet unfortunately that's all they ever compare they also compare low fat high fiber to high fat low fiber so already you've got two variables is it the fiber is it the fat is it the combination and they're really interested in health they've actually done the same work in women and the same low-fat, high-fiber diet tends to lower estrogen, which is good from a breast cancer standpoint. It may not be good from a menstrual cycle health standpoint. It may not be good from a performance standpoint, right? Low-fat diets can deplete intramuscular triglycerides, type of fat found in the muscle, contributes to fullness, probably more important for endurance athletes. Very low-fat diets can impair immune system function. Most of this work is endurance athletes. So the answer is, I don't think anyone knows what's optimal. You know, back in the day, Dan Duchesne, who's a very cutting edge nutritionist, he's a friend of mine, he yeah. unfortunately passed away. You know, he, he believed that moderate fat diets, 25 to 30% yielded better growth. He was focusing a lot on, right, it, if you eat lots of carbs all the time, your body becomes very much carb uh, reliant, right? That's the whole fat adaptation thing. The more carbs you eat, the less fat you burn. What that means is that if blood sugar drops, the body has to find carbs somewhere. Carbs aren't available. It may break down protein, right? You may, you can get into a little bit of a situation if you're too much of a carb burner, I guess, where how well you're using protein might go down. Maybe, maybe not. So he, he was a big fan of like 30% fat diets. I find a lot of people rebel. They're like, ah, that's pretty high fat. I don't want to get fat. Not that fat per se makes you any fatter than carbs per se. Again, Eric and I have discussed this extensively. And unfortunately, most studies use percentages. And I detest percentages because I don't, yeah, think, it's it's I don't think it's physiologically relevant. So people ask me the question. And the number that I typically throw out is... Hang on, i got to make sure I get this. Drum roll. Well, yeah, it's just I want to make sure I get the metric units correct. Um, so the numbers I've thrown out, and, and Eric and I are kind of in our agreement of this, is... 0.44 grams per pound of body weight, right? So for a 180-pound lifter, that would be 80 grams of fat, right? And across four to five meals, that's still pretty moderate. Um, converting to kilos, let's see, divide, no, multiply by 2.2, which would be 0.97 grams per kilo. Let me make sure I did that. Right. So this so is 0.44 per pound, right? right? Point, yeah, about 0.4 per pound, you know, or, or the way he approaches it is 25% of total calories, but no less than 0.44 per pound. And that, that you know, there, there, there are exceptions when you get to like 
the extremes of contest dieting, you may not have the calories to work with, right? When calories gets to, to, to beyond a certain point, you're trying to keep carbs higher, fat may have to go below that. But I think as a good general number, that'll put most people in the right range. So 160 pound lifter, 40 grams of fat, uh, you know, 130 pound female, you're looking at, you know, 30 to 40 grams. I might bump that up slightly, uh, 30 to, you know, with maybe a, a lower limit of 30 to 40 grams. That diet just become awful if fat intake yeah. provides more food variability, taste, texture, keeps food in the stomach longer. It's moderate without being too high. So I think yeah, that's yeah. a good starting place. And, and that 0.4 grams is that, uh, or, or four per, or well, so that number that you just said, is that based on ep epidemiological observation or? <laughs> no, it's actually, I'm faking it. All I did is I just back calculated it. So I assumed a rough maintenance of say 16 calories per pound. That's a rough average. Yeah, I took 25% yeah. of that, which gives you four calories per pound of fat. Divide by nine, you get 0.4. It's based on exactly nothing. It's based on back calculating it to your average maintenance calories. Okay, so it basically comes down to putting in a reasonably balanced um, ratio for fats and carbs. Basically, yeah. It, it's. I mean, I wish. I, I wish there were better numbers. I wish there was harder information on this. You know, and if you look at at the studies that have used the twenty and forty percent or whatever. It's in that range, right? They're, they're typically using a maintenance intake of like 1.7 multiplier on about 10 calories per pound. So like, it, it's usually in that range. Like there's a paper on women that looked at, it was like 16% fat versus like 30% fat. And it was right in that range. It was like 30 grams of dietary fat versus about 50, which for their body weight, this is all a bit of an estimate, unfortunately. It just right. hasn't effectively studied like they know in endurance athletes you need at least like 25% fat to refill it but they just keep using percentages so you kind of have to get in the studies see what the maintenance levels are back calculate it and it just kind of ends up being you know even you know okay the studies go ah, 20% versus 40% where's the cutoff they've never looked at a middle ground to go okay would 20 versus 30% be different? Because they're looking at 40% fat, which is kind of the modern Western diet, versus 20%, which is a pretty low fat diet, um, and going, well, let's compare these to make sure. But no one, to my knowledge, has really looked at anything in the middle. So maybe it's 30%, maybe 25%. You know, I'm trying to hedge my bets between a balanced diet, allowing enough carbs for training, allowing enough room for protein, and keeping calories where they need to be. So it's very much back calculated. Okay. Eric okay. Agreed therefore we're right okay uh fair enough and um just i, I have uh, two more questions on fat but we are already gone past an hour just i, I want to be respectful of your time uh how cool all right then cool then um one thing that i wanted to ask is often i hear that when from certain people uh but i've never seen any evidence presented for this, but they say that when you're bulking, so you're in a caloric surplus, then it's wise to limit fat intake to a moderate amount and not go too high because fats are energetically very efficiently converted into fat deposits on the body. So um, is there any scientific basis for this? 
Yes and no. Um, so we know that just based on biochemical pathways, right? Dietary fat is basically stored directly. It's stored very efficiently as fat. In the 80s, part of the problem was they, they found that carbs, you know, it used to be that, ah, you eat too many carbs, they are converted to fat and stored. That's what happens in animals. Doesn't happen in humans under most conditions. There's a couple weird ones. If you eat like 900 grams of carbs per day, every day for several days, you'll refill muscle glycogen and you get, but, but for the most part, carbs don't convert to fat. So they went, ah, everybody heard in the 80s, carbs can't make you fat. Well, that's untrue. Carbs cause fat gain indirectly, right? This has to be, there's a hierarchy of how the body uses nutrients, right? So if you eat excess carbs, your body burns more carbs. Yeah. If you eat excess fat, your body does not burn more fat, right? The misconception among the high fat people is that eating more fat makes you burn more fat. That's incorrect. Eating less carbs makes you burn more fat. <laughs> so if you eat more carbs, you burn more carbs. If you eat less carbs, you burn less carbs. Protein tends to control itself. Like carbs are kind of protein sparing, but so is fat, ketones, not getting into that. Um, so if, if carbs come down, fat oxidation will go up. And if carbs go up, fat oxidation, the burning of fat for energy will go down, which means that any fat you are eating will get stored. So a couple early studies said fat was more fattening. A couple later studies said no, it actually for the same amount of overfeeding, they're equivalent. Now, the, 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 the confound is, of course, not, they weren't training. When you train and deplete muscle glycogen, incoming carbs tend to go to glycogen first. They get stored, stored for later use and then burned for energy second, right? <laughs> Ultimate Diet 2 uses that as a trick, right? You deplete muscle glycogen, then that first day you actually eat about double maintenance, of carbs, but you don't get fat because the incoming carbs go to muscle, get stored first, burn second. So I think there's some logic to it. Then again, people have found that for the most part, it kind of doesn't matter. Like if you're bulking, okay, you lower dietary fat. Like let's say you're at maintenance, right? You're burning, you're eating this amount of carbs and this amount of fat. Well, you're burning about this amount of carbs, you're burning about this amount of fat. Body composition stays stable. Okay, you start bulking, you raise fat, you're still burning the same amount of carbs. You're still burning the same amount of fat. The difference mm -hmm. gets stored. Let's say you raise carbs and lower fat. Well, you're burning this many carbs, which means you're burning probably the same amount of fat you were, or hang on, I did that wrong. <laughs> Carb oxidation will go down further. All the fat you're eating gets stored. So yeah, I, but then again, you add training. Some of those carbs may go into muscle. I think keeping dietary fat moderated, certainly, when bulking, again, in the long term, it kind of may not matter. Um, people get just as fat on high-carb, low-fat diets, or seem to, as they do keeping uh, carbs lower, you know. So I think within a, within a range, you know, I think if, if people are getting fat when they're bulking, the problem is they're just eating too damn much. And that yeah, makes yeah. a whole different issue, and which I'll just touch on briefly. Muscle growth is not fast especially in naturals, right? A beginner, if he's lucky, might gain 20 to 25 pounds a year. Intermediate, 10 to 12 pounds. Advanced, three to five pounds. Talk to the guys like Eric Helms or, or the more advanced bodybuilders. They're fighting to gain a pound a year or two pounds a year. Now, if you look at the actual math of what it takes to gain a pound, right? So let's say you're gaining two pounds a month. Let's be very optimistic. To gain a pound of muscle takes, eh, 
just to make them, we'll call it 3,000 calories above maintenance, just to keep it simple. It's, it's closer to 2,700. It's in that range. So if you're gaining two pounds a, a month, and it's 2,700 calories per pound, that's a total surplus of 5,400 calories. You divide that by 30, that means your total surplus needs to be 200 calories a day. Yeah. Over maintenance. <laughs> that's nothing. Yeah, right, and if yeah. you, even if you, even if you you cluster that to your workout, it's still only like two to three hundred calories over maintenance. What do people do when they bulk, bro? Thousand calories over maintenance. Well, that's why they got fat. People, and you can't force feed muscle. You can't force feed muscle growth. Um, There's actually a really good study by a, a researcher named Garth over in over in not America, that's the best I can do. She's actually doing some really good work with elite athletes, looking at body composition changes and dieting. And that doesn't get done very often. And they did a study where they looked at nutritional intervention, where they gave them a very specific number of calories above maintenance to eat. And they looked at a group that was just allowed to go to go for it. What they found is that both groups gained about the same amount of muscle over that time period. The group that just got to eat as much as they want gained something like four times as much fat as the first group. Mm. So muscle growth is unfortunately very limited and very slow. And if you look at it for like, you know, by the time you get to one pound a month, 2,700 calories per, per month, you're looking at, whoops, you're looking at just under a hundred calories a day surplus over. I mean, that's nothing. That's an apple. Like that's not even measurable. If you're down to look, you know, if you're down to that, that super advanced guy gaining a pound a year, the surplus you need is minuscule. And I've seen guys make this mistake. They're very close to their genetic limits. They don't want to believe it. And they're like, I'm going to bulk up to 300. Okay, mm -hmm. dude. What? You, here's what's going to happen. You're going to get to 300. You're going to be fat. It's going to take you two years to diet. And you're going to end up at exactly the same place you started. Yeah, and I think... Yeah, and I think uh, perhaps why the whole notion of like limiting dietary fat a lot while bulking came out to be is because when you're eating a highly energetically dense macronutrient like fat, then it makes it a lot easier to just do a dreamer bulk. Like oh, very much, no, absolutely, very much so. It's and you know, and that that's the danger. Uh, you know, again, that's very context specific. You know, whether dietary fat or carbs are more satiating, but neither here nor there for a lean athlete. Dietary fat is very highly concentrated. I mean, 100 calories, that's 10 grams of fat. That's less than a tablespoon of, you know, peanut butter, which is the favorite the favorite fat of the physique competitor. Um, yeah, yeah. Which, which I, I don't get why, because I can eat a jar of that. Like, I cannot think of anything more hyper-palatable than that. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I, I don't know why that's so popular. That's become an all-time favorite dieting snack. And it gets a lot of people into trouble for a different reason, right? If you actually look at a tablespoon, it, it's it's the level's actually just below the lip, right? You get yeah. small females and they get that big packed tablespoon, mm -hmm. right? Already they've added 50 to 60%. They do that. They of course lick the back of the spoon. That doesn't count, right? It's not in yeah. the spoon. Yeah. And, and suddenly their diet stopped working because they're doing that four times a day. Well, guess what? You're eating 400 calories more than you thought. It gets back to the, the, the misestimation thing. Yeah. I don't know why peanut butter is so popular. Give me one moment. Yeah. Yeah. On that note, just because it, it, I, it may very well be your next question is, you know, in terms of the, the type of dietary fat, if that matters at all, um, mm. 
just really, just quickly, you know, there is three primary types of dietary fats. Um, saturated fats, which are found predominantly in, in animal products, uh, solid at room temperature. Uh, in general, unsaturated fatty acids, which are generally liquids found in vegetable source foods. There's, there's monounsaturated fats, such as olive oil, and then there's the polyunsaturated fats, which includes the omega-3 fatty acids, omega-6, and the essential fatty acids, and the fish oils. Um, fish oil should be part of everyone's diet, uh, whether they eat fatty fish, which is very cultural. In America, we don't do a lot of that, but I know some cultures are just kind of raised on eat, uh, eating that stuff. That has to be part of everybody's diet, and I recommend an intake of between 1.8 and 3 total grams of EPA DHA. I don't care about the ratios. Most fish oil or fish oil products have a mixture of it, and that's total. So, like my fish oils have 300 milligrams of combined EPA and DHA, the two fish oils. So I take I would take between six and ten capsules to get 1.8, six times one, six times 300 to three grams, ten times 300. So you just have to look at the label. That should be part of everyone's diet. The effects on inflammation potentially fat gain that's kind of debatable they do everything mm -hmm. and they're very deficient in the modern diet unsaturated fats tend to be kind of second uh and then saturated fats um you know have gotten really the big the big bad health rap for a lean athlete who's eating generally well and training and it's not an issue some of that the dietary fat testosterone data suggested that saturated fat had an independent effect there was one weird study, you've probably seen it, where they gave them either high saturated fat or high unsaturated fat muffins. It was something like this. And the unsaturated fat muffins caused less fat gain and more lean body mass. I don't know if it's a valid finding. I don't know that it's ever been, I don't think it's been replicated. Um, there's a weird subculture that thinks that that unsaturated fatty acids are less healthy because they can oxidize and all this Never mind that every study in the history of ever says it's the opposite. Um, most people are going to get a mix, you know, unless you eliminate every animal product, you're going to get some saturated fatty acids, you're going to get some unsaturated fatty acids. I don't know that it matters in the big scheme, but if I think that's part of why the peanut, peanut butter is an unsaturated fatty acid predominantly, I suspect it came out of a feeling that it was generally healthier. Uh, again, for lean athletes, it doesn't matter if you're yeah, eating yeah. vegetables and fruits and lean protein and active, like for the general person who's obese and active, too much sugar, stress, smoking, alcohol, saturated fats make a big difference. For lean athletes, don't worry about it. Um, yeah, actually, uh, j just because you mentioned the anabolic um, properties of, of fish oils and stuff, just just as, a, as an offhand note, have you seen that uh, guy called Brian Peskin doing like this, this you know, because uh, he published these, these uh, kind of fear-mongering type of stuff about fish oils and, and like how... Uh, fish oil can be easily oxidized and causes inflammation and all that stuff. But I, I assume that was more of an issue with the fish oil capsules more so than the fish oil. The inflammation thing is exactly wrong. Uh, it's the exact opposite. It modulates inflammation. Uh, yes, the fish oils are more chemically reactive. To be sure, they, they react to light. They react to oxygen. That's why they're always sold in opaque bottles. Um, refrigeration, they, should be, you know, they shouldn't be left out in the heat. Uh, Ray Pete is another one who's just like polyunsaturated fatty acids are the devil. And of course, he pulls some really interesting papers to support that. And yeah, excess amounts, no doubt. 
um, a lot of fish oil products have vitamin E in them, which actually helps to prevent uh, their oxidation. And, but that's why, like, you need some, you know, a lot of people find that if they're, if they, like, break the fish oil capsule open or the liquid kind of has a bitter taste, it may have gone rancid. Um, I recommend just keep them refrigerated, open the bottle, take yours out, take them. Uh, if you, you could potentially take some vitamin E with it, but I wouldn't worry about it too much. So, yeah, I see where he's going with that, but I think unless you are leaving a bottle of clear, a clear bottle of liquid fish oil in the sun, I don't think it's a big issue. Um, certainly not, not as much as I don't think it's worth, you know, fear mongering over, uh, to be sure. All right, then. But, but you know, that's one of those things like we talked about. There's an element of truth to it, but yeah. you can take an element of truth and blow it completely out of proportion like that. All right. Um, real quickly, uh, what do you think about the big testosterone debate? Like within the natural or within normal physiological ranges. So I'm not talking about like subclinical to a normal level, but like from 600 to 700 or something like that. Do you think that makes any difference for a natural lifter? If it is, I think it's very small. Um, you know, about the only data comes from actually some steroid injection studies with it that Basin did that were extremely tightly controlled, where there might, you know, there might be some small differences. I don't know how much. I think even if you look at at the the dietary fat studies, I don't even think the effects that large. Like it might be from like 400 to 440, which might have a tiny effect. You know, if you take someone from 300, which is just above hypogonadal to 900 all the difference in the world like if you triple testosterone that will make all the difference in the world and it's worth you know even a baby dose of of anabolic steroids can like triple levels like it can take you from 900 to something like 2700 like that's why steroids work and they're kind of awesome uh, i personally think that worrying about all of that within the natural range I don't think it will amount to a tremendous amount. Like I think even in, in basin studies, like a hundred milligrams difference, it was like maybe a kilo of muscle. Like it was maybe a couple of pounds difference or lean body mass um, when they actually, cause they, they measured it. Um, so yeah, it won't hurt, but I don't think it's gonna have the effects people want. You know, people want it to be steroid-like. And the only thing that's steroid-like is steroids and they work, you know stunningly the the first that 600 milligram study by Dason by basin with not even training they put on 10 kilos of lean body mass and it was shown to be at least somewhat their strength went up it was shown you know myonuclei increased there was muscle fiber increases it wasn't just water retention and 600 milligrams per week is a baby dose guys are taking a gram a day and getting very much off topic but like steroids have steroid-like effects i think small i think small changes never hurts but you know these guys who are at 400 are like yep gonna optimize this and that like wow you're at 450 hooray i got news for you <laughs> go be a cyclist um because you're always you're all because you're always gonna suck at this uh, and there's just no get there's no getting around it if you look at successful bodybuilders if you look at some of the guys that wilson study they were slightly above the normal. You had guys that were in like the 1,000 to 1,100 range. They were definitely at very much the high end of normal. Right. So whatever results he claimed to have gotten, and I say claimed because I think his results are impossible, every study he did created generated results that have never been seen before or after with or without drugs. But regardless, his guys were all in the upper echelon 
of genetic hyper-responders and the realities of the normal curve, the average person, like even that number I gave that 20 to 25 pounds of muscle, that's a maximum. Most people probably won't even get that. Way off to you look at the fat-free mass index, and I've seen people arguing all the time, well, that's not an upper limit. I can name six guys that are above it. Fantastic. Now let's look at the 90,000 hard-training bodybuilders that will never come in above 165 in contest shape. Right? I don't care that a handful of genetic outliers or genetic superiors can hit that level. The reality is you're never going to, so get over it. Like it's always guys that are a buck fifty going, yeah, you can get to two twenty naturally. Yeah, some guys can, but you're yeah, not yeah. going to. So you better come to terms with that. Um, yeah, that even I think that goes back to some of the other stuff we talked about. You know, as far as you see these big guys going, yep, I'm eating five hundred calories over maintenance. Well, if you're on anabolics and synthesizing muscle twenty four seven at double or triple the rate of the natural. Absolutely, you can do that. You add a little clen thyroid GH, you can do it without getting fat. Naturals bulk like that, they just, they turn in, they get fat really, really, really quickly. And unfortunately, small surpluses are really hard to measure. They're really, you know, like you said, you start to eat certain foods, man. And, oh, yeah, I need that pint of ice cream at bedtime. Bulking, got to get big. Like, yeah, you will get big, but not in a good way. If, 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 if that's the only thing you're eating all day long, then perhaps. But um... Well, yeah, but you, 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 you see guys that do that, and they're just like, yep, I got to have those calories at bedtime, stay anabolic. It's like, man, that's fine, but, like, have some Greek yogurt, have a casein shake, that, you know, have a couple hundred calories extra, not a thousand, unless you want to, you know. So, anyway. Uh, yeah yeah all right um just um before we wrap up what i like obviously tons of stuff we didn't get to talk about but i let, let's just pick a nice saucy exciting question for last um I, I i'm not sure if you're still prepping people or um or or uh, coaching people privately but um let's just for the benefit of the question let's assume you do and someone Someone asks you, like, hey, Lyle, I still want to look jacked. I'm, I want to bulk, whatever, but I want to enjoy my alcohol. <laughs> what do you tell that person? Yeah, that's I, quite honestly, you know, I, I was going to look into that in a lot of detail. Alcohol is really weird as a nutrient. Like, it's, it does have calories. It's treated very differently in the body. Like, I talked about that hierarchy of nutrients where, you know, kind of, Protein regulates itself, carbs regulate itself and fat, and fat doesn't really do anything. When alcohol's in the system, it has to be burned over everything else, right? Alcohol is kind of a poison. If you drink, the body will burn that in, in, in over carbs, over fats, over anything else. At the same time, the predicted weight gain from alcohol doesn't show up in the studies, and they don't know why. There's actually two papers that call, they're called Alcohol, the Case of the Missing Calories, Calories are going somewhere, but nobody knows where. <laughs> it's really, really weird. There's a gender difference. For men, drinking tends to be associated with a higher, higher level of body weight and body mass index. In women, alcohol tends to be associated with a lower body mass index. However, this may be, I suspect it's social. Men tend to drink and eat fatty foods. And if you're drinking, all that calories coming in are getting stored i think that, whereas women frequently drink instead of eating mm. a woman will go, out to, will go out with her friends and all they'll do is drink wine 
so they can get drunk and, and, and be that. Men will go drink and eat. Uh, I mentioned this to a friend of mine. She's like, I've seen girls my age that they start drinking and they gain a ton of weight, but they're drinking more like men do. They're drinking mixed drinks, eating wings. There's also some evidence that wine may be different than hard liquor. The, the, the answer is that I don't know. Where I'd actually point everybody, Martin Birkin of leangains.com wrote what I consider the most comprehensive article on alcohol and everything. Because there's also a lot of fear that lots of alcohol may impair protein synthesis. And it's true if you give someone a bunch of alcohol right after training. I think like so many of the, these things uh, in moderation, it's not that big of a deal. On those days, maybe adjust your other food down by a couple hundred calories. I would definitely say avoid the alcohol with fatty wing uh, <laughs> type of approach. Like again, that's an American, again, I don't know what other countries do, but it's all, it's all the same thing. You go to the bar, you go to the pub, you get your booze, you get your fatty foods. It's the combination that I think is really the issue. But honestly, he did a bit, he's looked into it more than I have. I think it can be can be done in moderation, certainly. You know, I've seen people go, well, I want to go binge drink twice a week. How do I make my training work? I'm like, you might want to address the binge drinking before you you might want to address this before you try to paint the solution. This. But I, I do think in moderation, certainly. When by moderation, you know, you're talking about a couple of drinks a night. You know, there's also the issue that, you know, yeah, uh, a rum and Coke. Well, guess what? The Coke's got a lot of sugar in it. Uh, oh, vodka yeah. cranberry. Oh, yeah. and really, really, I think a lot of the bit, you look at a lot of mixed drinks and you're get you're adding a ton of sugar calories as much as the alcohol, um, you know, so you can get a rum and diet Coke. You can, we've got diets right in the U S you can get, you know, seven and seven over here. It, it's, it's almost that as much, I think as anything, or, you know, at least do something harder. If you do shots of straight vodka and pass out early, you know, that will limit your drinking and eating for a little while. So there's another problem. I'm joking. Uh, true, true. Kind of. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, there is, I would also warn people, if you're on a low-carb diet, alcohol will mess you up a lot faster. Mm. But alcohol inhibits the liver's production of blood glucose. And when your blood glucoses are, people get drunk way faster on low-carb diets. Which I guess is good if your goal is to get drunk and save some money, but just like be aware of that, that you can really get screwed up fast on uh, drinking a lot of alcohol. So yeah, I think a couple drinks once or twice a week or go out with your buddies and call it if it fits your macros and, and get over it, it's certainly not going to kill you. I think been, you know thinking that beer is a good post-workout drink, probably not so much. <laughs> well, I guess but yeah, go, go, go seriously. Martin's article is excellent. He he did all the groundwork on that, and I don't. There's nothing I can say that will be better than that. That's at leangains.com. All right, awesome. Well, Lyle, we covered some really cool topics, and you gave a lot of knowledge. And it was an honor to have you on. I will link I will link to your website and all your resources in the show notes and uh, in the intro. So thank you so much for coming on. All right. Cool, then I stop this. Well, thanks so much. It was awesome. All right, folks, that was it. Like I said, Lyle really did deliver on this podcast and he dropped several golden nuggets that you can make good use of in your own journey for attaining better body composition or enhancing your performance in the gym. 
So please leave a rating on iTunes. It would really help out share this podcast episode with others so they can gain some of this great knowledge for themselves. And please subscribe to I put out a new episode every week or so. And I promise you'll find it valuable.